Welcome to the Rational National Podcast. I'm your host, David Dole. Coming up on today's show, my interview with Michael Brooks of The Michael Brooks Show and co-host of The Majority Report with Sam Cedar. We discuss his uh, his studying abroad in, uh, in Turkey, his um, perspective on Brazil and uh, the political prisoner Lula da Silva, and uh, we also discuss the IDW, otherwise known as the Intellectual Dark Web, the... You know, you know who they are. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to give them too much of an intro. You can listen to the interview, but um, I guess I should give you maybe a bit of an update for my absence. It, it feels a little like I have to explain to the teacher why why I missed the test, but uh, I I was on vacation last week, and the week before that, I was trying to prep for my vacation by producing a lot more videos than I normally do in a week, working my butt off. And I just did not have time to also upload all of my videos in audio form and uh, post those up. So, uh, unfortunately, because I'm one person, at some point I hit a breaking a breaking point where I just can't do more than uh, than I'm able to do. But I'm back this week, so it's all good. And uh, this interview with Michael Brooks went up last week, but since interviews are perfect for the audio format. I want to uh, make that my first upload for this week, but I will also be following with all of my videos uh, as audio form or as a as a podcast format, continuing with the the rest of the week. So, uh, since I I mean, since I was gone, and I feel like I I sort of owe the podcast listeners some some extra content here. I might as well tell you a little bit about my trip. Now, if you don't care about that, you can just fast forward to the interview. But let me tell you where I was. So I went to the Big Island in uh, Hawaii. Now, for people listening, it may be sort of an odd choice to go to the Big Island as opposed to going to, I don't know, you know, Honolulu or something. But I wanted to go to the observatory on the Big Island, which is... So the observatory is on Mauna Kea, which is the... It's the highest... The, the tallest mountain in the world from seafloor to the top. So from seafloor to the top, I believe it's 38 or 34,000 feet. Um, Everest is a little smaller than that. Or I, I may be getting the numbers off a bit, but essentially there's a few thousand difference between Everest and, uh, and, and Mauna Kea. But bottom line, while I may have not been at the highest point in the world, I was on the highest mountain and at the observatory above the clouds, there is an incredible view. So uh, I got to watch the sunset from there and then we went down to 9,000 feet. Uh, so I actually I should say, so we were at about the, f- around 14,000 feet or 13,000, I think 700 feet uh, on Mauna Kea at the observatory. Then we go down to 9,000 feet to uh, look at the stars. And I saw Jupiter in the telescope and it was friggin' cool. I mean, you look through that thing, you, you can tell it's Jupiter, you see three moons around it. It is, it is crazy. I mean, to uh, me being somebody who is really into space, but was never really uh, smart enough to <laughs> to follow it as a sort of career path. Um, seeing that stuff up close is just, I mean, it's indescribable. But uh, yeah, I mean, that combined with uh, a big island tour where we saw both the 
the, the Kona side where we were staying and the Hilo side. There is so much I learned about Hawaii and the Big Island. I had no idea. So it was sort of not even just a vacation, but also just this this educational experience where I actually got some knowledge. I, I, I learned some stuff that I'm gonna that's gonna stay with me for the rest of my life. So that was really cool. The food was amazing. I love fish. So being in the middle of the Pacific, obviously you're gonna have some some fantastic seafood. And uh yeah, the weather, I mean, the weather's perfect at the coast. And the, the really, I guess, crazy thing about Hawaii, or at least the, the Big Island in particular, there is seven different climates, I think they said. So you go through these different stages when you're going up to, to the top of the mountain, or I guess the volcano, where, I mean, you start off incredibly sunny, hot, and then it goes through rain, and then uh, it gets colder and colder, and you're up at the top, and it's windy as hell and you see snow it's it's kind of crazy to be in hawaii and wearing a winter coat <laughs> it's like minus it's like minus five uh actually i'm not even sure if it was that cold it, it was cold but it was mostly because of the wind but um yeah i, I don't know I, I just it was an incredible experience i really needed the the week-long break i hadn't had a, a week off for quite a while so it was good to clear my head not be on Twitter too much, not taking the news too much, even though I still posted a couple of videos, a couple of live, uh, live videos, because I just feel like, I don't know. I think I have an addiction to work. I enjoy what I do. So when I'm away for too long, I feel like I got to check in and <laughs> make sure everything's still running, make sure there's still people listening. So uh, I had to post a couple of videos, but otherwise I was pretty much on vacation and, uh, yeah, all I can say is I recommend going to the Big Island. Check out the observatory. It's it's a tour. You can look it up, search it, uh, sign up, and go. I mean, if if you have if you can afford the time away and you can afford to you know fly to Hawaii. Luckily, I have a a partner who, I mean, she is always on top of the biggest travel deals I mean there is nowhere that we've gone that we haven't had an incredible discount in going there because otherwise we would not be able to afford to uh, travel at all but uh, she found an, an incredible discount going to uh, Hawaii unfortunately that also means that on the way back we had to take three different planes <laughs> so that's the one downside to finding these sorts of you know massive discounts is getting to and from these places Oftentimes, you're going to have to uh, experience a couple layovers in, in the process. But amazingly, both of our pla- like the, the first two planes were early. Uh, I've almost never had an early flight, let alone two in a row, that allowed us to uh, make all of these flights because we only had an hour between each layover. So I thought there's no way, especially the, the one from uh, uh, Chicago. Since Chicago is this massive airport, I'm like, there's no way we're going to be able to make this. But we did. So, I mean, it was an almost perfect trip. But anyways, I don't want to bore you too much with the slideshow for my life. Let me just uh, get now to the uh, the Michael Brooks interview where uh, we talk about a lot of stuff. Hey, folks, we have a great interview for you today. I'm joined now by Michael Brooks of The Michael Brooks Show. You may also recognize him from uh, the Majority Report with Sam Cedar. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, David. Great to be with you, man. Really appreciate it. 
Great to have you on. So before we, uh, we'll be talking a bit about Brazil and the IDW. But before we get there, I actually want to know more about your background. So I know you lived uh, uh, abroad for a while. Tell us about your experience uh, doing that and the kind of perspective that it gave you. Well, I studied abroad in Turkey, uh, and I've you know I've spent a little bit of time in in other places in the Middle East and the Caribbean and Europe. But I mean, it was really just a kind of extended junior year, uh, you know, abroad. Uh, I guess going to Ankara and Turkey was a little bit of a different flavor than, you know, going to Italy or something. Um, it was a really interesting time. It was, I was there, I think in 2007 to 2008, maybe 2007. I actually don't have the precise dates. Uh, it was, uh, it was a very, it was a very hectic time. I was there (laughs) with a, with a college girlfriend. We were in a very high velocity, high drama, (laughs) Uh, so that was one element of it uh the element that's more relevant i guess for people to understand was i was really interested um and it seems you know it's kind of tragic in a way although i have to say it wasn't terribly surprising but there was the idea at the time that uh erdogan and the akp uh justice and development party they really had branded themselves as kind of like a Muslim party that was doing 21st century democratic politics. And, you know, my politics were, you know, I was always somewhere on the left. I think in college, I, in some ways, probably sort of because I did, I was, you know, I was a total Noam Chomsky mm-hmm. sort of teenager and World Bank protester. I think I kind of burned out on that a little bit. And I was really, I was very interested in questions of uh, how we, how do we practice democracy? How do we establish human rights? uh, What are human rights with people drawing from different sources? Um, So I was really interested in these kind of global questions. And the perception was, was that the AKP and Erdogan at that time was sort of synthesizing these things. Um, Now, you know, when I was in Turkey, I would say there was plenty of topics, like even like the Armenian genocide, which you really cannot talk about there. Uh, Like that isn't a joke. Uh, Where, you know, frankly, the communist students were the only people who had any sort of recognizable politics. Um, But, you know, so there was a lot of conversations about what was happening in Turkey. And I think the Marxists were right that it was uh, in some ways it was kind of one sector of the sort of business class supplanting another. Uh, And um, also a lot of talk about Venezuela and, you know, Obama was running for president. So that was the kind of political part of it. But there was, you know, I hitchhiked around and I actually ended up we spent some some definitely some time in some of the areas now that are really affected by uh, the war in Syria. Mm. And so I think, yeah, I mean, I, it definitely affected my perspective. I've, but I've always had a pretty strong impulse. Like I, you know, I grew up in a totally broke family. I wasn't traveling overseas. I don't have any like family that were, you know, involved in diplomacy or anything, but for whatever reason, I mean, I was always really interested in 
just in how other people are kind of metabolizing the world and how they're sort of thinking about things. And, you know, and, and, and in some ways it's not like some of the kind of like lame multicultural discourse now is very, you know, it, it's very reductive because some, it doesn't necessarily mean like it's a positive thing, right? Like every place has its own incredible problems and contradictions just like we do. But you want to have a sense, I think, of like the the texture of other places, and I and I need to get that studying in Turkey. Yeah. So um, made a lot of Borat did... jokes too. Sorry, say that. I made a lot of Borat jokes too. Oh I'm yeah, <laughs> of course. So uh, when did you begin to really, uh, I guess, uh, educate yourself on on Brazil? Because you've discussed a lot about. Uh, Lula da Silva, the, the former president of Brazil, and how he's a political prisoner, and and how it could have sort of implications or at least lessons to be learned uh, from from that situation. But where did you uh, begin your education with uh, on what's happening in Brazil, and why do you see uh, what's happening there as a uh, why is it so important? Do you think? Well, where it began, I mean, look, I, you know, I, I did uh, go on and, you know, I, I did go to college and study international relations, which probably in, in you know, political theory, which ha does help. But I was also, you know, I was a very autodidactic and very experience driven, uh, you know, kid. So I think I probably first became aware of Lula, like, you know, I I think, and I could be wrong, but I think like reading a New York Times article about him when I was a teenager, when he was first cutting towards or getting elected to the presidency of Brazil. And even then it was like, this is an interesting person. I mean, this is not the prototype of who gets elected president or prime minister in most places, you know, yeah, someone who grew up in extreme poverty, someone who lost a finger as a metal worker uh, and rose up through labor unions. So you had that one element, but then in other ways, kind of like some of the guys that I was interested in in South Africa, you know, it was also like, oh, okay, there's there's all of this sort of like different background, but he's also like clearly a strategic genius and is like an incredibly skilled politician. And I guess those have been, those are probably still the two poles of things that I respect and gravitate to. Like if you have like a strong profound commitment to addressing things like, you know, inequality, um, th that is very core to me. And I think, you know, people who just want to play politics as a game, and that's all they're into. I mean, they suck and they're mostly actually bad at it and really boring people. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think, you know, I do think there are, you know, things like strategy or whatever are not all bullshit, even though some people talk, a lot of people talk about it are usually full of shit. But in this case, you had a guy who really did, you know, have this incredible synthesis of like this huge amount of charisma and common touch, but was clearly also like outwitting all of these like traditional hyper elites who are trained with every pore of their being to look down on somebody like that, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, it was also part of the time where, you know, even though, again, I would say like my politics sort of moved in and out of things, they were never like, there was always a pretty strong camp in the left. And so, you know, Latin America during that period of time was like the place if you were interested in governments trying to deliver things for people or fight U.S. interference, right, the pink tide 
Uh, and there was a lot of different flavors. You know, there was big things obviously happening in Venezuela, but also like Bolivia and Ecuador and, you know, in Argentina and, you know, and Lula was a main figure in that. Mm -hmm. So more recently, the way this has played out and, you know, there's a lot of history to it, but in, um, you know, his successor, Dilma Rousseff, uh, who in some, I have to say like, you know, she kind of, you know, I mean, I guess, yes, on some level, just objectively, she doesn't have the same sort of status as Lula, but she's also like this incredibly fascinating figure who, you know, was a guerrilla fighter uh, and rose to the presidency. And I think, um, I think, you know, I, I wish she had not done some of the things she did with the economy, which I don't think Lula would have done, just frankly, again, just strategically. Mm -hmm. um, but I think she's also like an incredibly admirable person. And she faced like a huge onslaught of everything in her presidency. And, you know, starting from like, I think just genuine campaigns of destabilization and obviously a lot of misogyny. But what happened was in, um, you know, I'll try to make this as concise as possible, but I think that the, the big story is, is, I mean, one, she was impeached and she was literally impeached on an accounting, like basically saying like one piece of money was in like money that was there was, but it was like in a different budget than it was in. Right. Like, I mean, a very basic accounting trick, yeah. which people, you know, politicians do the world over and they certainly do in Brazil. I mean, Brazil is a country where like you, you know, you have people like facing like credible murder and like, you know, cartel charges who might serve in politics. Right. And like mm -hmm. serious. So she was impeached in a totally politicized, you know, ludicrous way. And then you saw this kind of heat coming at Lula and I already registered it. Like I did speak out against it a little bit at the time. Now I had even in 2015, 16, like I was, you know, I had a role in the majority report. I was kind of building myself out. I didn't have anywhere near the sort of platform that I guess I have now. And in my view, I still have a hell of a lot to work on and do. So in my defense, it wasn't like I had a show where I could, you know, dedicate, uh, a huge amount of time to that story. But mm -hmm. I think also though, I was, and what I want people to be really wary about was that, you know, I was still kind of like absorbing some of these kind of like puritanical left-wing critiques of what was happening in Brazil. And even though I opposed it, I did kind of understand what was going on. I took too much of the corruption talk at face value. Mm -hmm. And when I really started to investigate it because there was this huge corruption investigation called Lava Jato, right? And yeah. the car wash investigation. And this is every time you read a report, they'll say that Lula is in, because he eventually was sent to prison in a way that, you know, and this is when I really started strongly covering it because it was extraordinary. I mean, he was leading in the polls for the presidency and he was put in jail literally based off of witness testimony and for something that the prosecutor called indeterminate acts. The prosecutor is also the judge, which is another incredible like it's literally a piece of brazilian law that goes back to the inquisition that they haven't changed so wow. this very very politically motivated vindictive prosecutor put lula in jail while he was leading in the polls and then the court silenced him during the election they wouldn't let him do interviews you know he he released a couple of letters so 
it just became really clear, like, on one level, okay, this is bullshit, and also this is really dangerous, and I do see a U.S. hand in this because the DOJ cooperated very significantly with Lava Jato, and I do think even though Lula did his best to, you know, establish and work cooperatively really with everybody, I mean, literally from like Ahmadinejad to Bush, yeah. uh, you know, at the end of the day, they the Workers' Party – were not willing to privatize core strategic assets in like the oil sector as an example. So I do think that that's a part of this story. So you have a guy who lifted about 35 million people from poverty, maybe more. Uh, So by my types of measures that I consider to be the most important thing, and the historian Perry Anderson said he's the the most successful president of the 21st century. So you have all of that going on. And then the second thing, and I'll, I'll try to tighten it, but it really started to hit me that like generic anti-corruption discourse, which is so easy for people to lock, lock onto because it's, I mean, one, because it's like, sure, everybody doesn't like corruption, right? We all get the corruption is bad, but we don't think critically about what that actually means when people are discoursing it. And what we're seeing in the modern rise of global far-right populism is that it is these uh, fascists or far-right populists who leverage that rhetoric and win. Donald, yeah. I mean, people forget, and it was comical because, I mean, Donald Trump is Donald Trump. But whatever. He said, drain the swamp. He made a lot of hay. I mean, even down to talking. I mean, this guy who called Haiti a shithole country called out the Clinton's conduct in Haiti. And by the yeah. way, the Clinton's conduct in Haiti is pretty obscene. That's like a real story. Mm-hmm. So... um you know, so Orban used this. Uh, Narendra Modi used this to rise in India, and J.R. Bolsonaro, the fascist that governs Brazil, talked about this ad nauseum. So it was like, wait a second. First of all, like, what, like, what is corruption, right? Because yeah. on one level, you know, to me, capitalism is corruption, right? Like, the mass misallocation of resources mm-hmm. is corruption. And then there's like, to the extent that you ever documented, I mean, first of all, you know, the case they have against Lula, which again is only based on testimony, is mind-blowingly minimal. It's literally like renovations on an apart. I mean, it's it's actually like the amount of resources that have been put into destroying this guy and the way that it's uncritically repeated in the New York Times and the Guardian and the yeah. BBC, it's like I guess I'll lay it on the line that I would still support and defend Lula even if there was like a real case mm-hmm. that's involving something so minimal. And I think I've been really transparent about it. Yeah. But the other thing that was going on in Brazil was like, like, like the United States, I mean, there is a very unregulated uh, finance system for campaigns. Mm-hmm. Unlike the United States, there's dozens of little parties, and these are like not in a positive sense of having more options. They're literally like mini fiefdoms of like it's like you and I get together. We're like, hey, all right, we're gonna start the fucking you know new YouTube democracy party. <laughs> yeah. We'll get these two seats, and we'll sit, and we will take bribes to vote an agenda. The the first serious scandal that hit Lula's government, and I think it did reveal you know some some problems and so on. But the bottom line of the first scandal was literally the Workers' Party paying off smaller parties to vote for things like minimum wage increases 
labor union protections, things like that. Yeah. So to me, it's like we need to really complicate what the conversation about corruption is, both because, of course, in the United States, the same people who will be total moralists and have no nuance or sophistication when they talk about some a country like Brazil, but then will like bend over backwards for like actual just corrosive nothing politicians like Joe Biden. That's one thing. But even more importantly, because even even frankly, I I think, you know, I'm somebody who did say, yeah, I really don't like I loathe Hillary Clinton. But, you know, I mean, we've already been through this a million times and it's boring. But like that was the right choice over Donald Trump. And part of understanding what the right choice is, is being able to disaggregate these things. Now, in Lula's case, I mean, it's a lot easier because, okay, nobody's perfect. But here's a guy again who lifted tens of millions of people out of poverty Mm-hmm. And even today, I mean, he's starting, they're starting to allow him to speak. And he's giving these cogent, smart, on top of it interviews about how to defeat these forces. I mean, this is still one of like the best political minds that we have. So, yeah. you know, I think it's important for him. I think it's important because Brazil is the largest country in Latin America. And I think it's important because the United States constantly interferes. And I also think it's really important because, you know, the last thing I'll say, you know, the institutions are different in the United States. The way it would work would be different. But if you don't think that, like, I mean, if Bernie Sanders gets elected president and you already see it in the press coverage of everything, there is going to be the most relentless yeah. campaigns of bullshit imaginable. And that is an extreme case. I don't think we're in a place institutionally where they could, like, put Bernie in jail. Okay. But I do think you. <laughs> You know, I'm not saying that, but I do think people really need to learn from how these institutions respond, because I think in other ways, it's not necessarily as dissimilar as people might think. I mean, even look at some of the things Corbyn is facing. Yeah. So um, there's one more layer to that. The 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 prosecution of Lula I want to bring up is aren't there connections to Bolsonaro? Like, wasn't the judge isn't the judge part of the uh, Bolsonaro's cabinet now? Is, is that true? So Sergio Moro, who's the, who's the prosecutor, first of all, his nickname for Lula was nine because Lula is missing a finger and his oh. goal is to get him nine years. in prison. I mean, he's a he, this is another like very vindictive, really right wing connected, disgusting figure who was uncritically praised. Yes, Bolsonaro made him justice minister. And so that was his you know, that's his gig. Uh, he's been looking into, you know, I remember when they first got into office, they were talking, he was talking about having to look into labor unions, period. So it's part and, and you know, continuing to go after other members of the Workers' Party. Today, as we record this in Brazil, there's huge mass demonstrations against Bolsonaro's plans to basically eliminate philosophy and sociology departments and universities. And already all of the mass cuts they're doing in all sort, all parts of education from like science and R&D, but also obviously like the humanities and social sciences. So there is a huge pushback. But I mean, yeah, I mean, Sergio Moro is a great example of that because, you know, even like that was something that even a lot of progressive channels and I won't get into names because I really don't want this to turn into some silly side beef. You can watch my videos if you want to. But, you know, it's very it's like they did. It was like, oh, yeah, like this is so great. You know, there's, there's this prosecutor in Brazil who's taking on the political establishment and it's like, okay, 
But what this has actually led to is literally the election of a, of a neo-fascist president in the literal usage of that term. He was an army captain when Brazil was run by a military dictatorship that that term was coined for, yeah. uh, who's, who's attacking the indigenous people, who's working to privatize pensions, who is, you know, in addition to the, all of the LGBTQ atrocities, in addition to like giving, he wants farmers to basically just have like carte blanche to shoot people who go on their land. Uh, and even before he came into power, after the impeachment, under uh, Lula and Dilma, Brazil was taken off of the hunger map. It was put back on under Temer. Uh, so, you know, that's been the big takeaway is like it's an assault on working people and it's an imprisonment of, you know, a really good leader. And, yeah. you know, everybody was so fixated on this simplistic anti-corruption discourse. They missed the broader dynamics. So this may be a question with no, uh, no easy answer, but can the left actually win if we don't play as dirty as the right? And I don't mean in the sense that, you know, put somebody in jail on trumped up charges, but there has to be, do you think that the left needs to be a little more, a little more tough, uh, I guess? Like, uh, what is your position on, on how the left should actually respond to this, this, these uh, far right politicians? I think the left actually needs to be way more um, tolerant and healthy internally and way more vicious and ruthless externally. Mm. So I and again, I don't think I think like internal debate is great, but I think that, you know, there are some super toxic subcultures that have developed on the left. And, you know, and I think that you really need to think about how to build like a resilient, uh, sophisticated, forgiving at times, uh, like a much more a cohesive internal culture because I think, you know, that was even a small piece of what happened in Brazil, right? Like one of the other elements of the story was that in 2013, there were these um, anti-bus, uh, you know, fare increase protests targeting a workers party mayor and like, okay, that's, that's great. I would probably be at those demos. Mm-hmm. But that energy got turned and filtered into these sprawling anti-government protests it wasn't leveraged strategically. It ended up again being another thing that facilitated the right. So I think that there actually needs to be work in that regard internally. And then, yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, I don't know what that looks like because again, what's, what's tricky is I feel like, you know, the people who branded themselves, particularly in U.S. politics, is like the people like, you know, that was the Clinton's whole thing. Like, hey, even if you disagree with all of these things that we do and all of our policy sets, we know how to beat these people. Yeah. No, you don't. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think my sense is like Bernie seems like he's not fucking around in this race. <laughs> like yeah. he's like he's pretty on it. Like I have to say, like. I. You know, like when I listen to, you know, Clinton people whine about Bernie, like it blows my mind because if I ran Bernie's campaign in 2016. I would go after Hillary Clinton for stuff, even stuff that I don't think is that important. Yeah, I mean, you see and Obama were- back in 07 and he was going hard against uh, Clinton. Like you, you, you see how o- Obama ran against Clinton in 07. Bernie didn't do anywhere near that in in, uh, in 2016. So yeah, abs- uh, I completely agree with with uh, Bernie needing to to be a little tougher this time around. 
But um, yeah, it needs to be really tough. And I and I think you know, yeah, and I and I do think an advantage you have when you are putting forth policies that benefit people is I do think that. You know, look, that doesn't take care of itself. Politics is still politics, and you still have to go out there and do your thing for sure. But I do think it's helpful, like when yeah. you know, because because I mean, that was the that the, the the really funny thing is when you have like a generation of just like total moral cretins with no vision, like Rahm Emanuel, and it's like, you know, all of this stuff, like, oh yeah, he he fucking sent a pollster a dead fish and all of, and like all this stuff, and it's like. Why? Why did he do that? Oh, to get like a tax rebate for people making like, you know, 50 grand, yeah. in, like a state for one year for like, a, you know, like, you know, some some type of like dystopian dull as hell <laughs> best case scenario might minimally help, you know, neoliberal uh, boring bullshit policy. So, yeah. you know, I, I think, yeah. Let's uh, turn to the uh, intellectual dark web now, because uh, you have a, a book coming out uh, in the summer, I yeah. believe. Is there a, a name for it yet? There isn't a name for it yet. That's it's going to be in the summer or the fall. It's, I, I'm like it's getting a lot closer, and then I feel like the name will reveal itself. <laughs> That's like the hardest part. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. So, have you written a book? Sorry, have you written a book? Oh no, I oh. <laughs> I'm not sure if anywhere near writing a book, but uh, but it, just in terms of like titling like videos, <laughs> I just oh, yeah, tell sure, you're talking sure, about sure. in terms of that sense. But um, yeah. yeah. So what have you learned uh in all your your work on you know researching the the IEW? What uh, I guess what have you taken away from this weird awkward movement that really isn't about anything that's different or new isn't really about helping people i mean what is sort of your overall uh, perspective on on the idw well this is really tricky i mean because there's some bigger bigger takeaways which i think which are going to be the kind of like core of the book in a way and almost i think if if i do my job well there'll at least be an interesting option more generally for how to approach left-wing politics um you know, one of the things that's tricky is like, you know, yeah, there is a part of me that's like, I mean, come on, like we haven't moved past this shit. Yeah. You know, um, so but I've had to subordinate that a little bit because I I realize like I do for the first part is like, look, and I think uh, Amber Frost made this point really well, like. You know, you can't moralize one way or another. Like, I know, like, they're, like, and I get, I get the tendency. I understand, like, oh, wow, like, whiny, you know, young white males, blah, blah, blah. But the truth of the matter is, is, like, you know, even take it without any empathy or compassion. That's a pretty dangerous demographic. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. might want to fucking think about them and actually try to strategize because, you know, most of them are not going to just be persuaded by you suck, go away. Yeah. Sorry. So, you know, that's like the first thing is like, OK, there is a real, uh, you know, crisis here. There is something that's being spoken to here. So what do we do about it? And then I think there's like sort of three different kind of lanes that I sort of go through. So like one is like, yes, I do think that and this isn't like a particularly you know, I'm echoing other people here, but I'm going to take it in a different, a slightly different direction, which is like, 
yes, um, the sort of standard, whatever you want to call it, woke, blah, blah, blah culture, it's not going to do the job. And, you know, in terms of like answering uh, the contradictions or the problems or the concerns that are raised by this subculture, and it's both not going to do the job uh, in ways that speak well of it, because, you know, people don't want to uh, be real about and confront some of the problems that the woke culture is at least diagnostically right about, uh, you know, things like racism. <laughs> uh, and they're also not going to work because, frankly, like they are, you know, super moralistic and controlling and they do tend to have really reactive, reductionist, repetitive takes um, that, again, I do think most people out. And I think this is a lesson for all of us that it's so easy to be in micro subcultures right now that you really have to consider whether you're, you know, a brochalist Joe Rogan head or a fucking SJW or a, you know, a, a Bernie bro. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that don't share your subcultural presuppositions. They do not. So, so I think, okay, so there's like, okay, there's a legitimate crisis. There's the failures of what, um, is at least presented in the mainstream as a left answer to those crises. And so then what I do in the book is first, you know, I deal with, after kind of setting up the bigger framework, I deal with the three main personalities, which I, you know, is, is, is Peterson, Shapiro and Harris. And, you know, obviously, I mean, look, so I'm trying to be less polemical and really deal with them in some ways. And, you know, it's still my book. So, like, as an example, like, I, you know, Dave Rubin's Dave Rubin. <laughs> yeah. That's a joke. Yeah, that's a and joke in itself. a joke in the book, right? Yeah. Like, so, but, so I think that there is a fun, there's a fundamental difference, though. And I think, again, this is another reason why, to me, Sam Harris is absolutely somebody of the right. Because, you know, a lot of people with this, like, they have been trained in these like tick box view of politics, which mm -hmm. is like, oh, well, you know, other than these, you know, it's it's almost like they've been trained in like the generation that could say like, oh, like Clinton is 95 percent. You know, she voted with Bernie 95 percent of the time. It's like, oh, well, you mean, but the 5 percent was like the invasion <laughs> of Iraq, the Patriot yeah. Act, you know, all of the main yeah. generation. All the important the parts. Yeah. <laughs> Right. It's like, okay, yeah. I'm glad that they agreed on, you know, uh, you know, honoring a baseball player today yeah. or you know, something Willie Mays Day together, but that doesn't really tell us anything. Yeah. So the way Sam Harris is right wing, in my view, and the way and what they all share is that it's a fundamentally anti-historical enterprise. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Harris has this weird, you know, he thinks that a combination of poll numbers and thought experiments can eliminate the need to historicize uh, really major and you know issues that he runs into. You know, he just he's he's got big opinions about over a billion people on the planet. Uh, yeah. You know, he's got big opinions about resurrecting the idea that some races are potentially, on average, genetically less intellectually capable. Mm -hmm. um, these are. And, and, and my track, again, is it's not just like you're a bigot. If you asked me personally what my opinion was, I would say yes. I do think he is. But it's that you literally cannot understand these things without a serious historical anchoring. You know, the idea – like when you look at Afghanistan and you look at a real piece of reporting like Ghost Wars by Steve Cole and you understand – 
that in the 80s, even Afghan Mujahideen fighters did not want to do suicide operations. That was not in their context. Mm. You have to all of a sudden you're in a conversation where you have to understand what was the financial flow like it's and it's not just because they go on this counteroffensive where it's like all you're saying is like ideology doesn't matter. It's just U.S. foreign policy. The real answer is that every single thing matters. Mm -hmm. But I think with a materialist viewpoint, ironically, me with the materialist viewpoint, even though I'm not this big, you know, atheist, whatever, is that people's actual, you know, literal material conditions and practices are the most um, sort of influential. So anyways, and then with, you know, Peterson, there's the his mythological thing. And then Ben Shapiro presents this. I mean, he's writing a history, but it's this, you know, it's like Reader's Digest for, you know. 12 year old, whatever. (laughs) And so the argument is that we need to historicize all of these things and then re-anchor these conversations in people's real, actual conditions. And then Mm -hmm. from that, the synthesis that I'm trying to create is like this idea of like a cosmopolitan socialism or a globalist socialism in the sense that, you know, on one hand, we're not in this like woke space, and I'm following the lead of people like Kanan Malik, who's a really big influence on mine, who wrote this uh, global history of ethics recently. And, it, and the way the way it sort of break down breaks down in a simple way is like if you talk about ancient Greece, which funnily enough I don't talk that much about because I'm not as educated on it as I should be, but I do know this that. You know, there's this Western chauvinist position that's like, hey, we go back to Greece and Greece to fucking America and fuck you, you know, the West, right? The class (laughs) chauvinist bigot position, which even if like the IDW and certainly Shapiro echoes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's this like new like, oh, no, I don't want those are dead white men, blah, 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 right? And then it's like, well, actually, what's funny is like a lot of these guys and the Romans, too, for that matter, were, were, were African. So you're not talking about dead white men. You're actually already talking about a global culture. Uh, so that and and a global culture trying to find global themes and echoing global experiences. So you aren't just bifurcating people into ever and ever greater separation. You're not drawing a false equivalency but you are asserting that there does have to be common struggle yeah and then on the other and then but then of course conversely to these to these fucking chauvinists i mean you know all of the history that they want to negate like who you know the transition where islam held the greeks and you know or the fact that the greeks were african literally shows you that this idea of like some uninterrupted chain is a historical in addition to being bigoted so the argument then is like what we need is we do need a a solidarity rooted in our real material conditions that is the people call it the vulgar marxist view which usually i'm sorry to say just you know it's called marxism like yes there is a lot of that but conversely where you can't skip the quote-unquote culture questions is that one you know everything of course isn't just like misplaced economic anxiety there are ideological lives for bigotry and they exist in their own trajectory and so my answer instead of though retreating back to that kind of like the sort of shallow woke politics which i'm rejecting is but you you have to build 
the corollary of that global solidarity is that it has to truly be like a genuinely global intellectual exercise. You, you need, and I try to do that on my show, right? Like I really try to the extent that is humanly possible to, again, not like, not discourse about something, but say like somebody like Cabral is a huge influence on how we need to think. And that's at the center. That's not like, you know, oh, like expand your horizons day. Um, so that's sort of like, and, and then, and then the, the last component of it that also sort of answers the book is like, answers the IDW is that this is also, you know, it's such a weird time to retreat into the stories that these guys are peddling in a time, not only of huge economic anxiety in the West and changes in how people are living and experiencing the economy, which they're not speaking to, but then also the fact that like, even on a just capitalist level, like, you know, like Asia is actually rising. That isn't just like a kind of cliche. There is a global reorientation of power. So how are you even on like a pragmatic self-improvement level, if you want to take it there, really preparing yourself to like properly engage in today's world if you're, you know, a kind of intellectual and cultural shut-in. Yeah. And so uh, that's not what I'm dealing with. There's a, a one point there I wanted to hit on just just briefly. So you mentioned uh, the shallow woke politics. That's something that someone like Jordan Peterson tries to hit on a lot. And I'm not sure if you uh, saw the debate between Zizek and, and Peterson. I yeah, thought I that Zizek did a good job trying to he almost appeal job. to that that side of that shallow woke politics, but then get them into a different perspective when it comes to to capitalism. So, yeah, I, I think you make some great points there, and and I think it's important that we, I mean, we understand a lot of these people that follow you know these sorts of figures, they're they're just uneducated, and if you get at them with something that they are familiar with, and you sort of you know you kind of half agree with them on the shallow woke politics, like you 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 you. You uh, agree with the parts of it that that are legitimate, but then you get them in and you you show them that hey, actually, also on these other issues, here's a different perspective that you may not be aware of. But I, I think there is definitely a way to reach a lot of these people because if I mean if they're uneducated, all we have to do is educate them, but do it in a way where we can actually grab them to begin with. And I think we can do that by exposing the the shallow woke politics. And then you also, I think, you know, it's you make really clear where people are, are actually coming from, right? Because then mm -hmm. it's like, look, if you really are rooted in some type of prototypical white nationalism or something, then all right, you're the enemy. Yeah, exactly. You know, political, like there's not then there's not there's literally nothing complicated about that. And and even there, like maybe maybe that's dealt with like you know, I don't know how you convert people like that. I know sometimes people like that are converted. I know that some people put in like incredible work in doing that type of thing. So I'm not yeah. even negating that. But on a political level, that is just like simple, yeah. you know, like, like I, I think and I think that is the kind of room that, you know, you need to be able to have. You need to be able to take on that people might have different cultural practices, they might have different ideas, they might have different experiences, they might even be rightly critiquing your subculture with you know, how you perceive any number of these like hot button things. Mm -hmm. But then if somebody is actually saying like, I don't want women in the workforce, or like I'm totally down with what they're doing in Alabama, then okay, like, yeah, Good. it's kind of hard to get somebody at that point. I mean, yeah. But I think the right, and that, but I think the problem is, is that you know, and and this, and it's funny to say this because, like, you know, 
you know, again, it's a dialectic. There's a lot of areas that we need to polarize way more on, but there's other areas, I think, in a, in a kind of cultural and digital space where people are, you know, uh, are definitely polarizing in ways that are just like both super feeble in terms of like thinking capacity and super off-putting to people. And again, I think that, you know, part of this idea about reaching out, it's like, it, it just isn't even a moral question. It's like, it's not, it's like, the morals are really simple. Do you like, like there's a new, uh, there's a rising social democratic party in Denmark. And part of the way the leader there, the part of the way she's doing it is she is seriously appealing to very harsh xenophobic attitudes. Well, there's, for me, that's like, okay, that's the moral line, mm-hmm. like done. Yeah. Right. So that's actually quite simple. But then on the other hand, like if you're going to go out and engage in the real world, like people are going to have like, you know, there's going to be some hot take story of the week and people are going to have different opinions on it. People are going to find different humor to be funny. Like mm-hmm. if you want to actually go out and deploy in some type of mass way, you need to fucking get over that and deal with it. And I am really tired of these people who I do think, you know, have very, you know, regressive and just, I mean, just even just frankly, just even just totally insufficient. I mean, delusional agendas. These people are not going to help you chart a course for understanding your political, economic, social life. And, you know, and I think, yeah, I think Zizek was a great example of that. I know. And, but that's another, you know, some people have all sorts of issues with Zizek. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right. And it's like, so, and I don't, and again, that's fine. So disagree with Zizek, you know, write your response. That's terrific. But I still want Zizek. Yeah, there has to be and nuance Zizek, there. I mean, you have to be able to separate certain people. Job. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and people need to get much more in the habit of that across the board. And I, and I, and I loved when Zizek, I mean, Zizek made that point, that part of like why that certain attitude can be so off-putting and actually reinforce the same tendencies that you're still centering yourself in that. Yeah, you're still exactly. centering, you know, white centrality. It's yeah. just the white centrality of like, oh no, I'm no, I, psh, I get it. You know, <laughs> that's the other part, right? Is like everybody's so freaked out about getting it, not making mistakes. Imagine if you had a culture where people actually could, much more in a serious and honest way, um, actually self-reflect. Yeah. And have like an openness where people can internally like actually better themselves. Yeah. Have the space to be able to. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually really important. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah. All right. I think, uh, I think that, that about does it. So, uh, where can people, uh, find you and, uh, and your show? Patreon.com slash TMBS. You will get a lot of content. You'll get definitely, I would say, a very global political education. But, you know, we also it's a it's a funny it's a one of my ex-girlfriends said I she said it, uh, this is before I started my show. But she said uh, it's like Al Jazeera meets reckless. And I was like, <laughs> actually pretty true. That's, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, you can follow me on Twitter, and Instagram. And also uh, uh, check out I do a show with uh, Waz, who's on TMBS a lot called mm-hmm. Woke Bros on the Black Opinions Matter feed on iTunes and I would check that out. All right, check it out. Uh Michael, thanks for uh coming on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I really like watching your videos, man. Oh, thank you. I love watching yours too. <laughs>